It has now been more than a hundred days since China first announced the emergence of a mysterious pneumonia of unknown cause in the bustling city of Wuhan in Hubei province. In those a hundred days, the virus would spread across all of China's provinces, usher in one of the largest lockdowns in human history, and bring the country's economy to a standstill. Today, what began as an epidemic largely confined to China is now a pandemic that is ravaging many other economies. Not least the United States, where there have been more than half a million cases. I'm Vincent Chow, a reporter at China Law and Practice, and host of the China Law Podcast, a weekly podcast exploring China's business and financial sectors from a legal perspective. In this episode, you'll hear from Junglun law firm Scott Yu in Beijing and King and Wood Mallison's Meg Utterback in New York. As we try to get a sense of how disruption to Chinese businesses and deals has shifted as the virus itself has moved from China to the U.S. In part one, Scott will talk about the pandemic's impact on antitrust and M&A work in China, as well as business opportunities amid the economic downturn. In part two, Meg shares her experience dealing with disputes caused by the pandemic, as well as her predictions for what the fallout will be for U.S.-China relations. Now, the government still asks us to uh, to keep a limited number of people coming to office, working in office. That's Scott Yu, a senior partner co-heading the corporate and competition practice group at Junglun Law Firm. Scott has acted as the leading antitrust counsel in a number of mega-sized global M&A and joint venture transactions, including UK chip giant Arms joint venture in China. As well as JD.com's partnership with Tencent, Scott works in Beijing, home to 22 million people, as well as countless international and local law firm offices. I caught up with him last week to see what the impact of the pandemic has been on M&A and antitrust work in China. So, Scott, have the courts and the government offices in Beijing reopened yet? No. Um, as far as I know, I think there are only very limited. A number of、uh, courts or government agency, who、um, a majority of them are still closed for、uh, in-person meetings. So actually, most of our works have been、uh, moved to online form instead of、uh, physical meetings. When it comes to antitrust work, which you do a lot of, is it easy to move things online, or is it something that actually requires a lot of in-person meetings? I think for our part, it's relatively easier, especially、um, uh, comparing to those court hearings,、uh, because even in the past, the antitrust bureau officials, although it's not very popular, but we also had had、uh, quite a lot of、uh, conversations with them、uh, by telephone or by、um, email. So now it's just they completely.、Um, Suspend the in-person meeting and move all the meetings or document submissions to the digital digitalized way. Right. So, have you seen a drop off in international M&A work in recent months? I imagine restrictions on physical meetings and travel must have taken their toll. Yeah, for that part, I see a, a larger impact、uh, on two aspects. One is, as you mentioned. Those meetings we traditionally would、uh, would hold the、uh, physical meeting, for example, those negotiations 
or drafting sessions. Now, even the very strict restriction on travel, especially for、uh, foreigners to China, many of these meetings have to again、uh, use the digitalized way. And the other part of the impact is we actually have seen.、Uh, Even、uh, the restrictions on meetings on travels, many of our clients、uh, have decided to postpone their projects to a later stage because the difficulty for them to have,、uh, I mean, face-to-face discussions or for those、uh, due diligence negotiations,、uh, we have seen a good number of cases being、uh, postponed to、uh, indefinitely. Yes, that is certainly borne out by data showing M and A activity in China in down by more than fifty percent compared with the same period last year. I mean, given that China is such a popular market now for international M and A activity, it suggests that this drop off is likely to continue because you know the the pandemic is now you know throughout the world. So even though China is getting back on its feet economically. The rest of the world is pretty much in lockdown. Yeah, that's exactly what we feel as well. And also, I think companies may also considering to adjust their strategy and the overall annual plan, given what is happening. Right. So this will affect both inbound and outbound deals because the quarantine measures in China apply to Chinese citizens as well. So Chinese parties can't leave China then come back without being quarantined either. You mentioned many parties are postponing their deals and their projects. I mean, have you seen any actually try to exercise their equity or asset buyout rights, or even try to liquidate their joint ventures?、Um, from my personal experience, I haven't.、Uh, there has been no、um, client asking us to assess the possibility of liquidation or closing down of business in China. What we Have seen are mostly those ongoing projects, investment projects are being、uh, are being postponed, and、uh, clients told us like maybe they need more time to decide whether and how they want to proceed with the current、uh, projects, especially for some projects in their early stage.、Uh, but good news is that we also seen, I think like one month ago, we have seen a huge joint venture project. Uh, although、um, the scheduled signing ceremony could not、uh, happen as、uh, as it was scheduled, but、uh, we did have those online signing ceremony and、uh, mostly still according to the original plan. So our、uh, observation is that investors are taking a higher caution and are reassessing their investment plans in China, but the. Then to change the overall trend or direction of uh, of uh, capital investment. So you mentioned the closing ceremony being moved, and that's something I wanted to ask about, which is the impact of the pandemic on the general closing of these joint venture or M and A deals. Have you seen any clients unable to satisfy any closing conditions which were stipulated by the contracts?、Uh, for those transactions where definitive documents are already signed. Uh, we are happy to see that almost like all the、uh, parties still decided to go forward, and none of them, none of our clients,、uh, have decided to delay or or like、uh, break a contract that they have already signed.、Uh, but as I mentioned, for those、uh, projects in their early stage, especially when the parties are still at the MOU stage or still conducting their due diligence. That we can see 
clients may want to slow down the pace and then to have more time to reassess the impact of coronavirus thing. Hmm. Right. So for due diligence, I imagine it's been almost impossible to conduct on-site inspections, for example. That's right. And also, inevitably, um, there will be, I think, maybe a different pricing model on the business given the uh, yeah, given the outbreak. Um, so the parties may all need to go back to reconsider the structure for investment or the price. Hmm. So for deals at an early stage, what has your advice been in terms of structuring these deals? A very direct impact is, you know, we usually in many of the contracts, we have the force majeure clause. And uh, although they may look like a very similar, but every clause is, is different from the others. And some, for example, contain the uh, pandemic uh, or outbreak as one of the force majeure events and some do not. Uh, in many of the cases, actually, force majeure will not be a focus of uh, negotiation. But I, I'm sure like after this pandemic, uh, lawyers and also cl- our clients will pay more attention than, than the past. <laughs> yes, I think we can definitely expect that moving forward. Certainly, force majeure events are less unforeseeable now. Um, and I do want to highlight the excellent piece you and your colleagues at Zhonglun wrote about force majeure and how foreign businesses in China can minimize their losses, which um, listeners can find on our website, chinalawandpractice.com. Anyway, I did want to ask you, Scott, about the coming months or even the next year or so. Do you foresee M&A activity picking up um, in China? Yes, I, I even, uh, as I mean, a lawyer working in M&A for almost like 20 years. I would say first, China is still a big market and there are still a lot of areas with a great potential. So I would say it, this should not change the overall trend of the MA in China. And even if, if economies, have, there are ups and downs, even if the economy is going down, that probably also means that there are even better targets at a, a, a like a more attracting more attractive price for them to invest but uh, that obviously require the investors to be more sophisticated and have a better risk control and a, a risk mitigation uh, structure for their investments including uh, as you just asked the necessary uh, legal clauses in their contract to protect them from those unpredictable risks and also maybe more flexibility for them to uh, change the terms for their investments, including maybe pricing, so that yeah they have a better uh, structure for their investments in China in, in the future. Right. So when you're talking about business opportunities, are you thinking about distressed businesses who are suffering under this pandemic who might need rescuing? That's right. And also, I think, for example, uh, you may heard like uh, a lot of Chinese companies are fa- local companies are facing cash flow problem. Uh, this dynamic thing may make them think uh, they need to have some other investors to help them to mitigate the risk and to help them to balance their their risk and their reward. Maybe before the outbreak, they think like uh, I can manage everything, but now after that, they may think that they need some more a stronger partner to support them in terms of capital 
or marketing. So that may create more opportunities for for cooperation between Chinese invest, I mean Chinese local entrepreneurs and and their their international peers. So yeah, definitely, I think distressed assets are is a great opportunity. But many of these kind of assets may not be cannot technically call them distressed. But this thing may just teach the Chinese businessman like I need. Uh, more ways to diversify my risk, at, even at the price of like I have to share the profit with someone else. So I wanted to also ask you about the regulatory side. So Samer has just taken control of merger reviews in 2018, and、uh, it quite recently proposed a host of changes to the antitrust and competition、um, regulatory regime. What 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 do you think? Samer might do to try to help M and A activity pick up again. That's a very good question.、Um, actually, the Samer has just issued a circular English translation of the title. If I can roughly、uh, translate that, it's uh, the uh, notice about supporting control and prevention of of the outbreak, and also、uh, to encourage. Work back to operations through antitrust、uh, enforcement. So the、um, the notice has a couple of paragraphs about like to penalize those、uh, monopolistic uh, conducts um, affecting uh, preventing um, normal、uh, back to normal operation. But it also says、uh, we will need to simplify the review process. Speed up the review of those transactions or or those operations which are useful for um for the um production of necessary supplies and also those、um, transactions which can stabilize、uh, employment and encourage um、uh, spending of people. So I can see um actually this has already become to be a very important part of、uh, Samer's job. To use their policy tools、uh, to encourage、uh, business back to normal. Thanks very much, Scott. Sure, pleasure for me. Now, from a place that is reporting dozens of new cases every day to a place that is reporting tens of thousands, with around three out of four Americans under some form of lockdown, the United States economy has ground to a halt, which is bad news for China as well, as the two countries are each other's biggest trading partners with long-established interdependence in cross-border M&A, capital flows, and supply chains, to name a few. To find out how the pandemic has disrupted Chinese investment in the U.S., I caught up with Meg Alterback last week. A disputes and compliance partner in King and Wood Mallison's New York office, who recently moved there after 20 years working in Shanghai, Meg represents Chinese and multinational companies in cross-border disputes, international arbitration, and U.S. litigation. Among other things, we discussed how disputes between Chinese and U.S. counterparties might play out, as well as the potential ramifications for the ongoing trade war. Hi, Meg. How are things in New York? Um, well, we're sort of the epicenter for the U.S. coronavirus, so we're at a standstill. Everybody's working from home, which in Asia you're accustomed to, but I think New Yorkers are still getting in the groove. If there is a groove that you ever get into, but it's difficult. You know, it's difficult everywhere. I think. I assume the courts and government offices are all closed. Well, the courts are largely closed, and some courts are not even taking filings at this point. 
some courts have gone to partial docket and they're still operating on a partial basis and regulatory authorities here are still working from home. And so um, we are seeing them try to put in some uh, stays and tolling agreements and things like that. But for the most part, we're still having conference calls. We're still talking. Right. So you're a U.S. litigator and you do a lot of litigation and arbitration work. Are you still able to do that even though the courts and tribunals are all closed? Uh, yeah, it's been surprisingly flexible. Um, obviously, some court hearings have been postponed and pushed into later in the summer. So we had a few matters that were coming up in April um, that have now been rescheduled into August. But on other matters like dealing with AAA and HKIC, uh, everybody's gone to virtual. And so we're having, I'll have a preliminary conference, for example, next week at a shareholders dispute that will be by phone. So things in, I guess, some form, whether it's Zoom or something else, some sort of video conferencing. So in that sense, you know, litigation and business is marching on or trying to. Um, I'd say probably on the whole, it's at about 70% of what it normally would be, but that's still quite high. Um, and in terms of how we manage the work, you know, the downside, I think, of being in New York when China's come back on is that we're having a lot of meetings at night for me, which is during the day in China. Witness interviews, for example, are still moving forward in some of my cases. So it makes for long days. Right. Is the shift to online dispute resolution an easy one? No, not at all. I think that we all wish the technology were a little bit better than it currently is. I mean, it's sufficient to get the job done. Um, but when you're trying to interview a witness, you know, in Fujian or, or Shanghai or somewhere remotely by Zoom uh, or even on WeChat and, you know, you've got connectivity issues, there's a quality of the audio, there's the ability to give them documents to comment on. There's just a bit of a, obviously my colleagues in China are able to be one-on-one -on -one with the witnesses, but it's just, if you are the person who's remote, it's just not the same. And so there is that challenge because it's difficult to develop a flow. And I've even had some witnesses over the past month who, who show up and of course they want to wear a mask. So then you've got the, you know, you've got the added layer of, uh, you know, the connection, the audio, doing it in Chinese and then having them you know, also muffled because, you know, they want to protect themselves, which you completely understand, but it does make it more challenging. So I want to ask you about new work that has arisen. Um, there's been a lot of attention in the global legal community on force majeure issues. Is this something you've been dealing with as well? Yes. And we immediately, when the virus hit in Asia, had uh, onslaught of inquiries from clients saying, if I plead force majeure under this contract, is it going to work? Um, of course, CCPIT kind of at about the same time came out with their force majeure certificates. And that led to a lot of question about how will they work and what's their uh, weight, because uh, it's more of an evidentiary issue, what's their weight in a foreign arbitration or court. So it's been a complicated area. The disruption of the supply chain is creating disputes everywhere. Um, and I don't think that's going to change in the near term. They haven't gone to court or gone to arbitration yet because we're still within the first three to four month window when people are trying to figure out, is this really a dispute that is not uh, something that we can settle or renegotiate terms? 
um, as opposed to, okay, we have to litigate over this or go to arbitration over this because we can't find an amicable solution. And there's also, you have to remember, there's also pricing issues that are coming up. You know, the drop in oil price has had a significant effect. You know, the availability, supply and demand, you know, people now recognize that certain commodities are highly valued that perhaps before were being sold at a much lower rate. So these things all factor into what claims there are under contract. Right, right. So how has your work shifted in terms of the inquiries you or your clients have been making as the pandemic has shifted from largely being confined in China initially to what is now a global pandemic with the US in lockdown as well? So it's for us as a Asia-based law firm, it's been a bit rolling. We saw in January, February, March timeframe, the beginning of, you know, the Asia shutdown, the supply chain fall off there, no manufacturing, people working from home. And, you know, now that is coming into the U.S. or is more than coming in, it's here. So we're having to answer many of the same questions we were answering for Chinese firms. I think the difference is that there's a lot of uncertainty right now in the market as to how how long is this going to last? How's it going to play out? If you wanted to negotiate new terms with your counterparty, for example, how do you know what window to put on those terms? You know, I entered into a, a settlement agreement on a matter about three weeks ago, and then all of a sudden they're not able to fulfill the terms of the settlement agreement because there are some aspects of performance because you can't travel across border. And so it's become very, very difficult to advise clients about, you know, here's, here's your best case scenario because we don't know what that is. So I think that it, a lot of it too is being driven by the financial wherewithal of the parties. So what we're seeing is a lot of people have disputes, but have concerns about whether they have the money to, to fund those disputes. So in fact, it's an interesting time for a third party funder because if they have cash on hand uh, and are willing to back disputes, it's a great time for them to be involved. It's interesting to hear you talk about parties trying to find a settlement or negotiate in order to give themselves flexibility, um, which which I'm sure is the number one thing that a lot of parties want when so much is still uncertain. Um, we don't know when the lockdown measures in Europe or the US will be lifted or when China's economy will pick up again. Do you see this negotiation stage moving into an aggressive litigation stage further down the line? Yeah, I think if we don't get some certainty around these issues, there won't be much choice. I do think that China is coming back online, and I find that things actually, even sitting here in New York in lockdown, on the China side, things have picked up considerably. You know, I'm getting up on Saturday mornings and having conference calls on Saturday night. You have a sense that people are trying to recoup the time that they lost in the first three months. So I do think that it's going to be an interesting shift as to how the wave rolls. And there are some geopolitical issues around all of this, which is, you know, the U.S. has become acutely aware of how dependent they are on Chinese supply for PPE, for healthcare materials, and in other sectors as well. And so I think that the supply chain itself is probably going to change uh, with time because of these concerns. What it looks like, nobody knows, um, but it's definitely going to make some permanent changes. What do you expect moving forward in terms of the legal battleground of the ongoing trade war and worsening relations between China and the US? As a lawyer working in New York for a Chinese firm, do you expect your US litigation workload to increase? And do you expect US regulators to be even more aggressive in their enforcement actions against Chinese companies you represent? 
Oh, absolutely. I think, well, and you have to remember, too, that we're heading into our election cycle in the U.S., so that uh, naturally leads to a much more nationalistic rhetoric and, in turn, more sort of hawkish policies, if you want to say. So that means higher or increased regulation. As I said, I think the recognition of the U.S. of their dependency on certain supply from China is going to drive the U.S. to either heavily regulate that supply or to um, seek measures to sort of control the, the market economy. And the way that the U.S. has done that over the past few years is through trade. And so whether that's through the Department of Commerce, uh, the entity listings, or through OFAC, Department of Treasury, with sanctions, we're going to see, I think, increased activity by the U.S. in those regulatory sectors. And then I think for China, um, I think China is going to continue those companies that get targeted, which are usually in high tech or maybe now moving into healthcare and pharmaceuticals. I think you're going to see those companies begin to look elsewhere for their uh, supply and sale because they're not going to get as many U.S. exports and they may not be able to as easily access and make money in the U.S. market. You know, I was quite hopeful after the trade or phase one trade deal in January but we've definitely, in the past, you know, 60 days, moved away from that sort of detente into a uh, time when I think the U.S. is going to get more conscious of these issues, not that they weren't before, but probably more aggressive in terms of how they manage the process. What we're seeing, you know, you've probably seen recently the issue about whether or not the U.S. will put um, some sort of restrictions on offshore manufacture using U.S. origin equipment, which is, you know, targeted presumably at manufacture of semiconductors through Taiwan on U.S. equipment. You're also seeing concerns about getting rid of, as it relates to China, general license CIV, which is, you know, allowing export for civilian use without a license. There are some people in government who seem to believe that, you know, somehow even private industry in China and certainly state-owned industry in China is necessarily connected to the military. And so any end use is dual use at best or military end use. That's where the, the rhetoric is trending. Well, that's a pessimistic note to end on. <laughs> <laughs> we have to say something more positive than that. I, I think on the whole, you know, reasonable minds will try to manage, you know, and, and slow what appears to be a decoupling. And, you know, I'm very hopeful that at least some voices in the U.S. administration are going to keep China as a partner and not, not a, a threat. So let's, let's cross our fingers on that. Thank you so much, Meg. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. All right. Cheers. Bye. Special thanks to this week's guests, King and Wood Madison's Meg Utterback and Junglun Scott Yu. And thank you for listening to the China Law Podcast, a weekly discussion of China's business and financial sectors from a legal perspective. Just to let you know that the podcast can now be found on Apple Podcasts, so make sure to subscribe there if you haven't already, and leave a review if you like what we're doing. It will help us immensely. Make sure to subscribe to our website, chinalawandpractice.com, to keep up to date with the latest Chinese legal and business news through our in-depth features and analyses from our network of leading lawyers and in-house counsel, as well as full access to a searchable database of English full translations and digests of PRC legislation going back 33 years. Stay tuned, and thanks again for listening. <laughs>